2 Samuel 6. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 15. God's word says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. That's important. Remember that and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the ox oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to, Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So the story of David uh, is told in two seasons in the form of two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel. The book of 1st Samuel ends with the death of Saul. So for those of you who are on Slack, um, you would have noticed that I posted a little mini devotion this past week over the death of uh, Saul, which I just didn't want to pass by it um, without talking about it. So if you have Slack and you haven't checked it, go and look at um, that This would also be a plug for you to sign up for Slack, because that's our main method of communication here. So if you're not on Slack, come talk to us um, afterwards. Um, but at the end of 1 Samuel, you see the very, very tragic death of Saul. Someone texted me and said, hey, thanks for that uplifting and encouraging message on Slack. Said, Sorry, bro. It's just the word of God. Um, but you see the very, very tragic uh, death of Saul. The Philistines attack uh, attack Israel and Saul and Jonathan end up dying at the end of 1 Samuel. And then at the begin of, beginning of 2 Samuel, we find David, who has been on the run from Saul, and we're introduced to a mystery man. He's an Amalekite who shows up at David's camp. This man says that he has just come from the battle with the Philistines, and so David asked him, okay, well, how did it go? And so this man tells David that Israel has lost the battle and Saul and Jonathan are now dead. So David says, well, how do you know all these things? And this man says, by chance, he was passing by the battlefield and he heard Saul call out to him. Um, And Saul asked this man to kill him. Now, 
we know that this man is not telling the truth. Okay? We have information because of Scripture. First uh, Samuel 31 tells us that Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, and when his armor bearer refused... Saul killed himself with his own spear. Most people believe that the Amalekite man was just scavenging around the battlefield, looking for treasures uh, to take. And so this man probably thinks that David is going to be excited to hear that Saul is now dead. He probably thinks that David will give him something in return for one, delivering the news, but two, also he brings the crown of Saul to David. But on the contrary... David commands a soldier to take him down right where he stands. So David kills this man because of the principles that we saw last week, that Saul is God's anointed king and no one should put his hand on him. Now, finally in chapter 5, I'm giving us a rough overview here. Finally in chapter 5, after seven years of fighting within themselves, um, David was fighting against one of Saul's sons who tried to inherit the kingdom after Saul Died after seven years, we find David in chapter 6, finally king over a united Israel. Now, before we get to chapter 6, which is where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning, um, there's two things I want to say about the first five chapters of 2 Samuel. One, first thing, first five chapters of 2 Samuel. You see David in the first five chapters of 2 Samuel have incredible moments of faith and devotion to God. And in 1 Samuel 5.22, if you want to look at that, we get this, I think it's an amazing moment. It says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Raphim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And it says, and David did as the Lord commanded him. I love that. When you hear the sound of marching in the trees. Um, God says, I'm going to go before you, David. And when you hear me go before you, then you can go. Contrast that to Saul. You remember? When God told him to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifices, he couldn't wait. He went ahead and attacked the Philistines. David listens to God when he commands him to listen. You also see David in these first five chapters continually advocating for mercy for his enemies. He does everything he can to keep peace. And even though Saul's death benefited him, he never speaks ill of Saul. If you read through the chapters, you'll find that interesting. He never speaks ill of Saul. And no one would have blamed David for trashing Saul's name, right? But he never does. After Saul and Jonathan's death, David writes this eulogy for them in chapter uh, 1. Not once does David say a negative thing about Saul, but instead he says, for example, in 2 Samuel 1.23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. That's a big statement. Weep over Saul. Talk about loving your enemies. After everything Saul has done, he has nothing but praise for Saul. In these chapters, David will constantly show mercy to his enemies. He will throw a party when people want to reconcile. Most of David's men want to kill Saul's men. But David keeps telling them no. He displays mercy over and over. That's the good stuff. Now let's talk about the bad stuff. Number two. 
Second thing you see in the first five chapters. In these five chapters, you see the beginnings of David's sinful heart that is only going to grow as the story goes on. In 2 Samuel 3, you see a list of David's wives, multiple wives. Remember, we talked several weeks ago about how having multiple wives was a direct violation of God's law and how it's never a good idea. It always ends badly. And specifically for kings, God had given specific instructions. So this applies directly to David in Deuteronomy 17, 17. It should be on the screen. It says, and he shall, talking about kings, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And we find out in 2 Samuel 3 that he has not just one, but six wives. I don't know how one man could keep up with six wives. I can barely keep up with one. Even, and she's amazing. More than that, at the end of chapter 3, you see a really honestly just sad story uh, around David's first wife, Michael. So Michael was Saul's daughter, and he was, she was David's first wife. And their love seemed to be genuine. Right? At one point, David puts her own life to protect David. I don't know if you remember that story where David's in the bed, and they like carry him, carry him out, and she kind of covers for him and helps him out. Their love seemed to be gen- genuine. When David is exile, exiled, Saul marries off Michael to somebody else. And at this point, she seems to be in a happy marriage. And at the end of chapter 3, David has gone off and married several other women, but he decides that he wants Michael back. Not because he loved her, but because marrying her would give him some sort of political power with Saul's family. In 2 Samuel 3, 14, it says, Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael. Notice the language. Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of 104 skins of the Philistines. Um, Dad's not a bridal price I would recommend. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so, and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, uh, Paltiel, the son of Lish. But her husband, listen to this, this is a really sad verse. Her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Baharum. And Abner said to him, Abner says, just go home. Just go home. You've got no power here. But you notice the language, right? He took her. David, in this moment, he's not concerned with what is best for Michael or her new husband. David is concerned with his own power. And what you begin to see in these chapters is a dark part of David that is only going to increase as as, uh, the story goes on. David is not seeing his sin correctly. He is compromising here over and over. When it comes to women, David leads with his power and his pleasure. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about Bathsheba. We're going to talk about it. And what happens to Bathsheba doesn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't a one-off moment. It wasn't just, oh, my bad, this was a one-time thing. Bathsheba was the result of a pattern of compromise and self-absorption in David's life and the way he viewed and treated women. That David, despite being a man after God's own heart, has this repeating sin that is ultimately his downfall. So listen, before we get to chapter 6, let me give all of us one warning including myself, it would do us good to be aware of the areas of our lives where we tend to compromise our holiness. What are you okay with? Destruction is built on a mountain of compromises. The small things that we do that we know that are wrong, 
If we do not stop those things, kill those things, if we do not bring them into the light, they will build, and before you know it, the person that you become will be unrecognizable. And it typically starts small, but if it's not confronted, that sin will grow and grow until it controls you. Controls you. And before you know it, those small compromises that used to bother you, they won't bother you anymore. I mean, after all, you've gotten away with it for so long, right? Eventually, you get to a place where you do something that you never thought you could do. The Bathsheba abuse by David is not accidental. It starts right here in chapter 3. The seeds of compromise are inside all of us. So the question becomes, think about this. If the seeds of compromise in your life were to harvest, what would destruction look like? John Owens, if you don't know who John Owens is, come on. You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. So the question is, where are you compromising your holiness right now? I just wanted to mention that. I thought it was too important to pass over. Now, let's step into chapter 6. We see that David has reclaimed the holy city, Jerusalem, and in this chapter, he is going to put a lot of effort into bringing one specific item to the city, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. David gets together 30,000 men. That's a lot of people, right? And it's not like they're expecting some kind of battle, right? They're not, he's not expecting some kind of battle with the Philistines. This is meant to be a celebration. This moment is a party. I mean, think about the, a massive parade, right? This was to be a moment of victory for Israel. So the question that we have to ask is, okay, what is the ark and why is it so important? So the ark was a large wooden box that was covered in gold. On the top of it were two golden angels that faced each other. Uh, God had called Moses to build the ark back in Exodus, and inside of it, inside this ark, were three things. The jar of, a jar of manna, representing God's provision, the Ten Commandments, representing God's law, and the staff of Aaron, representing God's miraculous power. On top of the ark was a lid that was called the mercy seat. And once a year, a high priest would offer one sacrifice, and he would cover the mercy seat with the blood of the innocent. And the idea was, when God looks down on his law, he wouldn't see the sin of his people, but rather he would see the blood of an innocent sacrifice. The ark was the symbol. It was the power of God's presence that God had told Moses, hey, in the tabernacle, I will speak to you over the ark. It was evidence to God's people that God is present with his people. When God told his people to carry the ark to Canaan, the water of the Jordan literally split so the ark, so they could walk the ark on dry land. That's amazing. When God told them to conquer Jericho, he told them to carry the ark around the walls of the city. Do you remember what happened? And the walls came tumbling down, right? Now, who in here remembers what happened to the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 5? A little quiz time, because we talked about this, right? Um, In 1 Samuel chapter 5, Israel loses the ark in a battle against the Philistines. Eli's corrupt sons took the ark into battle, thinking that it would be some kind of good luck charm to them. But God won't be manipulated by anybody. And so not only does Israel lose the battle, but they also lose the ark. The Philistines... Take the ark. Do y'all remember this story? 
Okay, good. I'm glad you listened. Um, the, the Philistines take the ark into their temple and they put it next to their god, Dagon. And you remember, Dagon falls over and so they put, put him back up. And then the next day, uh, Dagon falls over again, except this time he's got no arms and his head's cut off and it's chaos. And it says only the, the torso of Dagon remained. And you're like, what? And then they start to break out in boils and rats infest their land. And so finally, they come up with an idea. Hey, let's attach the ark to some cows who are milking And if the cows run back to Israel, then we'll know that all this is happening because of the ark. But if they run back to their babies, then it won't be because of the ark. So the ark runs back, uh, or the ark goes back to Israel. The cows take it back to Israel, and it enters a place. This is what we didn't talk about. It enters a place called Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh was a valley that connected Israel and Philistia. And while it's there, 70 people got curious about the ark, and they decided to look inside of it. And just like the Germans in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, a movie I saw just recently, we actually don't know if their faces melted off. The Bible doesn't say that their faces didn't melt off, just saying. Um, But they did all die, just like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, So they call someone to get the ark from them, and from there it goes to the house of a guy named Abinadab, where it will sit for the next 20 years. 20 years. Imagining, imagine visiting Abinadab's house. He's like, oh, what you got back there? I wouldn't go back there if I were you, right? <laughs> um, but this entire time that Saul was king, the Ark of the Covenant was just sitting in some guy's house? That tells you something about Saul's priorities, doesn't it? David, in contrast, one of his first acts as king is to do whatever it takes to get the ark back. First Chronicles tells us exactly why David wanted the ark so badly. It said that David deeply desired to be in the presence of God. There was nothing he wanted more than to know God and to know God's presence. And so they put this procession together, 30,000 people, and as this procession, this worship service is happening, uh, as they're walking towards Jerusalem, they run into a problem in verse 6. So let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Okay. Uzzah and Ahio were tasked with driving this cart. They were the sons of Abinadab, the guy who's been storing the ark for the last 20 years. And if you can recall from all of your experiences driving an ox cart as a kid, um, you don't really drive an ox cart, okay? You walk alongside of it, kind of guiding it as it moves. So when the ox stumbles, Uzzah puts out his hand as he sees the ark begin to fall. Uzzah's just trying to do some good here, right? He does probably what we would all do. I remember one time I dropped a fork and I instantaneously caught it between my toes and it was the most amazing thing I've ever done. We just instantly react to things all the time. I got a different fork, Um, just saying. Um, All Uzzah did was react and he instantly gets struck down by God. Now, something interesting to mention here. God had given Moses specific instructions on how to move the ark in Exodus 25. God had told told Moses, hey, put four golden rings on the outside of the ark, on the four corners of the ark, and what they were meant to do was put these two poles through those rings of the ark. And those poles were never meant to be taken out. 
and the cart was only to be moved by Levites, the holy people, right? And so before the Levites could move the cart, they had to cleanse themselves and they had to lift those poles up and carry the ark. So it's important to note here that all the rules that God had set up for moving the ark were being broken by David and his men at this moment. Uzzah and Ahio were not Levites. They put the ark on a cart. They don't use the poles to carry it. And then someone who is not a Levite touches the ark. Now, if you can put yourself in this scene, okay, because this is a pretty insane scene. Um, I mean, think about verse 5. Put yourself there. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Just think about when Altuve hit that home run the other night in the Astros game. 30,000 people just celebrating, right? Sorry. Um, but they're celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I mean, this had to be the best worship service that has ever existed. There is joy. There is singing. There is dancing. Uzzah, he's singing to God. And then all of a sudden, the, 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 the oxen stumbles and the ark begins to fall, and then he touches it, and then boom, he's dead. Can you imagine the gasp and then the silence that probably followed? Now, there are many people in the world who have issues with stories like this in the Bible. Really? Did God just kill someone because he what? Touched a box? It seems like a pretty dumb reason for, someone, for God to strike somebody down, right? I mean, Uzzah had good intentions. It's not like he was trying to destroy the ark. He was trying to save it. And there are people who will look at this story to prove that God is harsh and unfair. I'm sure at some point, a lot of us maybe thought that about this story. Maybe you think it right now, or maybe there are other things that you read in Scripture, and you're like, really? That seems pretty unfair. Even David gets angry. Even David gets angry. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David was offended by God. Really, God? He was just trying to help. I bet if I asked us in here, did you, do you believe that Uzzah deserved to die? Hypothetical. I bet there's a lot of us that would raise our hands. And so the question that we have to ask is why? Why did God strike Uzzah down? Was it just because he broke the rules that God had, had handed down and he had to hand down his justice? Or is there something more going on here? Is there another layer here? Let me ask you this. How many of you, when you read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and you actually made it through those books, um, have asked the question, why in the world does God have all these rules? Ever wondered that? And some of those rules are rather strange. Kids are in here. I'm not going to read some of them to you. Um, but here's the thing. All the rules in the Old Testament, the law of God, they revealed two important things. First, the law revealed the incredible, majestic holiness of God, the immaculate glory. And they revealed that there is, in fact, nothing and no one like God. And second, the law showed us just how wide the chasm is between us and God, that the reality is if you could keep the law, if you could keep the law of God perfectly, if you could be holy like God, then that would be evidence that you could rightfully be in the presence of God. But the problem displayed all throughout the Old Testament is that no one can do it. No one can match the holiness and glory in God. In fact, not only can you not do it, but you fall woefully short, embarrassingly short. 
The chasm between our sin and the holiness of God is so wide that there is nothing that we can do to get to the other side. There's no bridge that we can build. There's no way to cross that gap. God is out of your reach. He is unobtainable, and he is unmovable. And here's the reality of this story. Just like most of us, Uzzah was totally unaware of just how sinful he was. Uzzah saw the ark falling to the ground and thought, oh no, the ground is dirty. I can't let the ark touch the ground. God is holy. And Uzzah failed to realize that his hand was far dirtier than the ground ever was. The late R.C. Sproul said one time, the ground has never rebelled against God. Only sinful man has done that. If the ark had touched the ground, it probably would have been fine. But in the hands of a defiled human being stained by sin, the only result could be judgment. And listen, God is not able to just say, oh, well, your sin's not that big of a deal. I'll let this one go. No, that's a tragic misunderstanding of the holiness of God. Holiness is not an option for God. It's not something he turns on or turns off, something he chooses to be or not chooses to be. Holiness is what God is. We have a hard time understanding that kind of purity. We have a hard time understanding what that is. The holy of, holiness of God is like, it's like a color, the, a, a version of white that we've never seen before. I mean, do you remember how the Gospels described Jesus when he was transfigured? I'll read it to you, Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then it says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Imagine being there, right? Intensely white. We cannot comprehend the holiness of God because we don't have a category to put it in. Nothing on this earth compares to it. So when Uzzah put his hand on the ark, he failed to consider. And honestly, David, when he ignored all the rules that God had placed around moving the ark, they failed to consider the most fundamental truth of the gospel, The thing that we have to understand, if we are to understand the gift of grace, is that God is holier than we can even dare to understand. And then, our sin is more serious than we think it is. David and Uzzah were careless here. They had not seriously considered the chasm that laid between their sin and the holiness of God. Uzzah would have never put his hand out if he understood the true holiness of God. He would have never put his hand out if he understood the seriousness of his sin. So to say that God is overreacting here, or to say that God, that Uzzah did not deserve to die, it's not only a misunderstanding of the holiness of God and the misunderstanding of the seriousness of sin, but it's a misunderstanding of our need for the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of our need for the gospel. When God struck Uzzah down, it wasn't because God was being stingy about his rules. It was revelation that he cannot be compromised and he cannot change his nature. He is holy and on our own merit, we are unworthy to touch the box. If it had just been about the rules, they would have struck him down when when, uh, they put it on an ark. They would have struck him down when they didn't get Levites to carry it. It's not about the rules. This moment is about God being unable to change who he is. And this moment is about us being unable to change who we are. He is holy, we are sinners. I wonder if Uzzah had thought, you know, if I touch the ark, it's just, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I think that's what David thought. If I don't follow the rules exactly, then it's not that big of a deal. They thought, you know what? 
We're doing good here. The ark's in a house. We need to put it in the holy city. We're singing songs. We're worshiping after all. We're doing a good thing here. God should be thankful for us. And David gets a reality check here. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? The reality, the reality check for David was this. David, we are further apart than you think we are. And no amount of religious activity, no amount of tambourines or symbols or worship can bridge the gap between me and you. And for us, it doesn't matter how many Bible stories we know, it doesn't matter how many times we've been to church. The gap on our own is further than we think. So the question then is, and the question for David is, okay, what hope is there for us then? What hope is there for David? If the chasm is so large, if our sin is so serious and God is so holy and there is nothing that we can do about it, what even is the point? I mean, what is even the, the point of us being here today? Why are we here? There are so many better things you could be doing right now. Just, I mean, the nude games for football start in like an hour, right? Fox NFL pregame is happening right now where you could talk about, uh, where you could watch 50-year-olds talk about 25-year-olds playing a game. You could have a cup of coffee and some bacon in your mouth right now on your couch. <laughs> or you could be sleeping if you so chose to do so. Um, there's just a lot you could be doing. Why do we gather here on a Sunday? Why do we show up at 8 a.m.? 8 a.m. It's like zombies setting this place up, just trying not to let the screen fall on top of us. David says, how can the ark even come to me? That's David saying, I get it. I get it. I understand that you are holy. I understand that I am a sinner. And that right there is the starting point to understanding the beauty of the gospel. He stops the procession. He puts it in Obed-Edom's house, which Obed-Edom was just the closest person there. They're scared to take it any further. And so in verse 12, it says, And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. I mean, imagine, right, watching Uzzah die. And now you look around and you go, So what do we do now? <laughs> right? David's afraid. He doesn't want to mess with the ark anymore. And, it comes to, and he comes to Obed-Edom, I can just imagine that conversation, David knocks on his door. Uh, hey, listen, we were just kind of traveling. We've got the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Um, can we store it at your house for a little bit? Um, it's like saying, hey, look, man, can you watch my pet lion for a few days? Look, d don't touch it. Don't feed it. Uh, just put it in the back room. Don't go near it. But look, it's no big deal. He's fine. Um, but it says the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. And I love that it says David heard it. Heard it. The Lord wanted David to hear that the ark had blessed Obed-Edom. Here's the thing with the ark. The gospel is a declaration, and it's found within the ark. And that declaration is, no, I intend to dwell with you. My presence, I intend to bless you with my presence. Yes, God cannot change his holiness, and we cannot change our sinfulness. But the ark is a declaration, I intend to meet you. I intend to be in fellowship with, with, with you. What we have to realize is not only does the, the ark illuminate the holiness of God, but the ark is declaring his plan. The ark is God's, God declaring his plan 
that he intends for us to be in fellowship together. And so look at verse 13. Pure gospel. This is why we are here. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Notice that it says, first, those who bore the ark, bore the ark no longer are they using a cart, but they are doing what God has commanded them. Chronicles tells us that David went and got Levites to carry the ark. They're using the poles, right? They're not using a cart anymore. And every six steps, what are they doing? Do you remember the purpose of the mercy seat? The lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that when God looks down on all, all the rules, when God looks down and evaluates his holiness and our sinfulness, what does he see? He doesn't see the chasm. He sees a bridge in the form of an innocent sacrifice. Every six steps, they are covering the blood on top of the mercy seat, a sacrifice that would purchase our righteousness, that we can stand in the presence of God because the blood of the innocent one covers our sin. The ark was a declaration of the holiness of God, but it was also a declaration of hope. It declared God's majesty, but it also declared God's mercy. Every six steps, they made sure that the blood of an innocent sacrifice covered their revealed sin. It was a reminder. Forgiveness comes through the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Six steps, we can dwell with God because of the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Six steps, through the sacrifice, there is peace. Six steps, through the sacrifice, there is provision. But the ark was a proclamation of God's holiness. It's a proclamation of our sinfulness, but it was also a declaration, a promise of something that was coming. You see it yet? You remember the promise we talked about in week one of this series? In chapter one. It's the same promise from Genesis three when God told the serpent, hey, someone is coming that's gonna crush your head. It's the same promise that was given to Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the same promise that we see in Judges when there's a flicker of hope of light left. Someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. And who is that? Hebrews 10.10, and by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And what does it say? No more are you taking every six steps once for all. Many years later, God would put on flesh. He would become like us, except he was holy. All those rules that God said that we had to keep, all those rules that every human failed to upload, uh, upload <laughs> uphold, Jesus did not break a single He kept God's law perfectly because in his nature, he was holy. It was not possible for him to be anything but holy. And in his holiness, he willingly laid on that cross. And the wrath of God fell on him. Fell on him in judgment. Not because of his sin, because he didn't have any. But the wrath of God fell on our sin. So now, for those of us who are in Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He doesn't see all the rules that we have not kept. He sees the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And on that reality, God calls us holy. We can touch the box. And by the will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. Without Christ, your sin has eternally separated you from God. There is no hope for you. You will always be searching for something to fill that chasm. The cross of Christ 
is the only hope that you have. And in love on that cross, Jesus declared, I've got you. I know you can't do it. I know you're unable, but I am more than capable to cover your sin. And because of my blood, you are no longer met with judgment, but you're met with grace. The undeserved favor of God falling on you and me through our Savior, Jesus. And so the question remains, how do you respond to something like this? What do you do? Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. For the person who understands the holiness of God, for the person who understands the seriousness of their sin and understands the unbelievable gift of grace in Jesus Christ, that person worships. They dance before the Lord that Jesus is better. And his blood is proof that our God will never leave us, never forsake us. So listen, wherever you find yourself today, he has not left you. He has not forsaken you. The blood that covers you is the same as it was yesterday and will be the same tomorrow once and for all. And so verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I want us to think about something before we close. The only reason that Israel is able to enjoy the presence of God, it's not because of David. It's not because of Uzzah. It's not because 30,000 men put on a great worship show before God. Think about this, verse 5. They tried to put on a show, and it didn't matter. Their sin still remained. If we're not careful, we can turn into believers, or we can turn into a church that cares more about the show of worship rather than the reason for our worship. You know, we could put a fog machine up here. Just saying. I mean, look at where we are. We're in a, like, world-class theater. I don't know if it's world-class. Temple-class theater, all right? It's nice. Look at all these lights. We could do something really cool in here. We could do a fog machine. But you know why we don't? Because you can't replicate what the Lord can do. Only the Lord can forgive us of our sin. I mean, sin. Look at verse 5. Israel, they were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They pull out all the stops. They have the fog machine, the lights, the best musicians, but you know what? Their sin remained. Their worship was focused on themselves. But true worship does not happen through us or because of us. True worship happens because the blood of an innocent sacrifice has come. Once and for all. And it's not until David and his men move the ark through the blood of the lamb that they can move. It's not until they're covered. We don't worship to get access to a holy God. It's not like the more passionate you you worship, the louder you sing, the more you give, the more likely he will hear you and bless you. No, we worship because we have access to a holy God through the blood of Jesus. And so the question that would be good for all of us to ponder, do we have as individuals, and as a church, do we have a proper understanding and reverence for the immaculate glory, the holiness of God? Do we have a proper understanding of the seriousness of our sin, the chasm that has been created between us and God, and lastly and most importantly, do we have a proper understanding of just how amazing the grace of Jesus is? Are we ashamed to dance? (laughs) Are we ashamed to worship? Or do we look at the blood-covered mercy seat 
and go, thank you. And we unashamedly give praise to our God because he's better than anything else.